So, um, <clears throat> in um, in in our um, culture, um, the way we um, we usually go about uh, happiness is um, uh, by uh, having uh, some kind of a thirst for something. You know, I want something, and when I will get it, then I will be happy. Uh, it's something that I want to have or to be. That's kind of a general way that we uh, we go about happiness. There's something that's telling me, you know, if I get this, then actually something, and sometimes it's a lot of the advertisement tell us, you know, like when you get that car, <laughs> you'll be young and beautiful <laughs> and graceful and your hair will be shiny also. <laughs> and you'll always have the right music playing. <laughs> anyway, all these things. But uh, it's often presented like this, you know, there's, this, there's a thirst for some, something and um, and if I go for it, then I'll get happiness. And in the Buddhist um, view, um, philosophy, um, it's, it's um, we could say the opposite. Because the happiness is a, is a result of non-thirst, the absence of thirst. Yeah. Um, there's this, um, this word, uh, tanha in Pali, that we translate by... Uh, thirst or craving and it's known to be the source of uh, of stress of suffering of uh, misery actually yeah and there's another word uh, upadana a little pali crash course here um, and this wor word is translated by um, clinging or attachment or um, one word that is used uh, often to describe it is also uh, like a literal tran uh, translation would be fuel. So the fuel for, uh, for suffering is this uh, clinging attachment, something that in our practice uh, is very, uh, very central because that's the source of suffering, but also that's something very central because we want to get to know what is the experience of this clinging attachment. And uh, as many of you know, in, in Buddhism, there's many list, lists that are useful to consider, to, ref to know of, the at the level of information, to consider or reflect on, things to ponder. So that's a second level of, of depth of understanding. And then a third depth of understanding is uh, the level of uh, direct experience, of meditation, where we get to experience uh, some of these lists, you know, these list four noble truths, the five hindrances, the seven factors of enlightenment, the eightfold path. <laughs> I mean, I can go on forever. <laughs> we have a whole collection. So tonight, I want to talk about one list that I find very um, useful. The list is the list of the four attachments. Yeah. So the four areas where we tend to um, I'll replace the word attachment here by uh, the four areas where we tend to uh, freak out about, <laughs> get tight around, get bugged by. Uh, what are the, would be the other expression? Block, get stiff, uh, I, I don't know. Um, and so the, the list, I'll give you the list and then we'll try to explore some of the aspects of uh, each. Uh, which aspects of this list. So the list is attachment to uh, sense pleasure. Yeah? And uh, so that covers a whole field there. Then attachment to uh, views and opinion. Do you feel, like just when I say this, you know the, when, how we can get attached to our views and opinion about things and how it can create misery for ourselves and for others. <laughs> You know, freely offered misery here. <laughs> I have a view. I have, a, I have an opinion about this. Yeah. And so, and what we want to look at tonight is the clinging aspect. For sure, we want to look at the what is sense pleasure, what is a view and opinion, but the clinging aspect. So, could we have views and opinion, have a sense pleasure, experience it 
there's no way around it anyway, but without the clinging aspect that may, brings misery to our life and the life of others. So sense pleasure, views and opinions. Um, uh, there's a classic uh, name for this third area or aspect of clinging. It's uh, rites and rituals. And in there I put, you'll see a convention and norms, how we can cling around this. And then the last one, the most uh, subtle and kind of... Uh, very unique, I would think, um, contribution of Buddhism to the world of uh, liberation <laughs> is the area of clinging to self, like things as mine, me, who I am, moi, as I think of in, uh, in French, you know. And so that very sticky, sometimes very gross, this is mine, you know, you see the kids, my toy, you know, how it can bring misery. And uh, and sometimes extremely subtle in the form of identification, where I, I, I well, we'll, we'll, we'll talk about this in a few, towards the end of the talk, I don't want to get too much into it. But that's the four general areas, yeah? So let me dive in, because we just have an hour, and that's a lifetime of uh, a, a practice and experimentation. But I want to drop this, because that could be good for us to consider as we sit here tonight, but also as we drive back home, meet our uh, housemate partners or other drivers on the, <laughs> on the highway or when we get to the bridge, some of us will get to the bridge. I don't know if it's, uh, it's easy now to cross the bridge, but apparently there would be challenge this weekend. Um, so the whole area of, um, of uh, pleasantness and unpleasantness, yeah? Uh, so there's a standardized reaction that we human beings, and many of you know that and I've experienced it uh, very clearly also, so a standardized reaction that we have when the, something is pleasant or unpleasant. Yeah? And that, that uh, comes with life. Huh? Anything that we experience at this, any sense door, so something heard, uh, seen, uh, smelt, tasted, or felt, or even in the mind, images, thoughts, that's considered one of the senses, yeah? So one of the six senses, when there's an impression or a contact there between the eye and an object, and there's always in this realm, in this reality we're in, it, the, the, there's a kind of a, we could almost think of it as a juice that comes with that experience of meeting a sight or a sound, is that it will come with the tone of pleasantness, an experience, a, a taste of pleasantness with it, or unpleasantness, or very often neither pleasant nor unpleasant. Yeah. So um, often, very often, and that's a whole area to get interested in is uh, when pleasantness happen, there will be very often suddenly like. Mm, like that. <laughs> how to get more of that, you know, how to keep that, you know. And sometimes it's just like the, even the, the, the enjoyment, the pleasantness is, is just a flash, you know, an idea in the mind. You'll see this, you know, you're thinking in general and suddenly there's a pleasant idea of something that could be pleasant in the future, you know, or just cross your mind, you know. Some people, it's donut, you know, or, <laughs> but it could be anything. It just crossed the mind, and there's a feeling like there could be a gratification that would come, you know, and suddenly it starts strategizing, you know, yeah, if I do this first, and I do that, if I say that, and I do that, then I might get this thing. Do you recognize something in there? I'm, I'm the only one in that realm, yeah? So there's, that's, a, that's a kind of a habitual reaction, and sometimes it doesn't happen. And that's in the practice of presence, of uh, meditation, not just on the cushion, but the, the meditation um, attitude, I would want to say, in life, is to, to see this, wow, to see the clinging. There's a, the possibility of, grat of gratification or the experience of it, and how the mind can like, suddenly like, <clears throat> yeah? And so to see this, and when it uh, comes to unpleasant, we say that one of the things that can happen is that as soon as it's unpleasant, there's a shutting down that happens, or a fear, or a reactivity, aversion to it. Don't want that, you know? Sometimes just the, the, the possibility of something being unpleasant, there's 
immediately in the mind is you can feel a shutting down, like I don't want that, you know, and, and uh, ready to get um, defensive or aggressive, not to feel unpleasantness. And it says that in this, it's in this realm that we're in, it can't, it's not possible to avoid displeasure. It comes with it. It's one of the great wind, the wind of pleasure and the wind of displeasure. And so, and part of what the, the spiritual practice of meditation and the Buddhist practice is, is to actually get acquainted with these two winds and learn to relax into them and allow them to come and what? Pass. There was a nun in the time of the Buddha, a monastic, and she said uh, this thing that, that was extremely simple, but I think profound. She was talking to her ex-husband who was asking her, uh, what's, what's the, what's, tell me something I haven't heard about pleasantness and unpleasantness. And she said, when pleasantness finish, it's unpleasant. <laughs> and when unpleasantness finish, it's pleasant. So for me, there's a kind of like, it's saying they both contain the other, why get so excited about it, you know? <laughs> the thing uh, around this also is that this pleasure of the sense, a thought, an image, sometimes it's an, uh, is it an English word, amalgamation? <laughs> yeah. Yeah? yeah? So it smells good, it has a beautiful voice, <laughs> And, oh, it would probably taste good also. And, you know, it's, when it talks, it has, offers such beautiful ideas, you know, like this. And so there can be this, uh, we get in a trance, you know, like this, the, 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 the beauty and the, the pleasantness of this we want to keep. And sometimes even we would not say that, but own in a way, you know, like um, uh, these things that are pleasant. But what we have to become maybe sober about, I would say, is the fact that the pleasantness at the sense door is extremely shaky. It's, uh, it's something that changes very, very quickly. You know, you're having a nice uh, meeting with friends, sharing a meal, and uh, it's all beautiful, and suddenly somebody says something, and the pleasantness is gone with one sentence, you know, it's, it's gone. Or I'm having a pleasant uh, dream or fantasy about next week or some, something, and another idea comes in the mind, yeah, but that has unpleasantness to it. And the pleasantness is gone, like this. And so in our uh, attention in everyday life, to start to see how we can't <coughs> invest in pleasantness because it's so unstable, unreliable, mainly because it's conditional. It takes several conditions to make something uh, be pleasant and stay pleasant. And many of this con these conditions, most of them actually, I don't have control over. Yeah? Even something, um, an image that I use sometimes is, uh, imagine somebody uh, that you like is um, stroking your hair. So they, they stroke your hair lovingly. It's very pleasant. <coughs> and then they stroke and stroke and stroke <laughs> and stroke. And three hours later, <laughs> the same thing. The object doesn't change. It's still like the same stroking. But now it's not pleasant anymore. <laughs> yeah? So even if the things, the, the thing itself, doesn't change, our relationship to it might change. Yeah? So we say it's a kind of shaky place to put one's happiness into because it changes, it's unreliable, it's shaky. Yeah? And also because it has with it this aspect of addictive nature. When, uh, so it says that there's, there's um, yeah, so let, let me stay with this. So there's an addictive nature that can, a tendency to, to clinging, to want more that can come, that has to be um, 
part of the equation. You know, it has to be known. Be, we have to be conscious of that, that, that there can be a, this addiction that I want more, that I want to keep, you know. And that is, uh, brings misery uh, also with it. So there's this uh, thing at some point the Buddha was saying, why do I still, do, and I'm paraphrasing here, but why do I still do this? It's because I only see the gratification in this. If I saw the danger in this, then I would find the escape from this. But I only see the gratification. And so I have to be more attentive to see the uh, ephemeral nature of pleasantness, to see the addiction, and to see that to the degree that I'm invested in pleasantness or comfort, to the same degree, and it's impossible to do otherwise, there will be fear of unpleasantness. And so there's a stress that can come with pleasantness, the stress that I might lose. Sometimes we say, if there's something, some pleasure that you want, it's stressful because you don't have it and you want it, so that's a place where it's stressful. If you get it, it's stressful because you might lose it, or you know it will disappear. So there's a slight agitation that comes with it that sometimes we don't want to recognize. Don't talk to me about this, you know. But it's the, and if I don't get it, well, that's also uh, unpleasant. So just to kind of try to balance the investment we might have in pleasure or displeasure. Um, there's a couple of years ago, I think now, I, was, uh, I had the chance to... Um, be invited to teach a retreat in uh, Samish Island in uh, Washington State. Very beautiful. When I got there, it was uh, spring, uh, late spring, I think. And uh, it had been raining uh, very gently. It was kind of coldish, and had, there was like a whole month of very gentle rain, no big storm, no dryness. So the rhododendron were kind of in an explosion of joy. They were, they were amazing. And uh, the rhododendrons that we have in, uh, in the Quebec area, they, they, uh, it's a whole different thing. You know, it's, it's they're very like, um, they want to live, you know, but there's not much hope. You know, <laughs> <laughs> and, and it's, it's, uh, it's a whole different ball game. <laughs> So I get to Samish Island and I'm like, what? I didn't even know these were rhododendrons. I was like, what are these things? You know, it's amazing. And people on the island were saying, yeah, it's amazing. It's been this light rain. It's almost like uh, the inside of a refrigerator at a florist, you know, like it's completely controlled environment. And so, so the, they're, they're not being attacked in any way, you know, and they're, they keep blooming in all these colors. It was amazing. Plus it was the season for the herons to mate, and there's a heronry in that area. So there was herons in the sky, and there was little uh, multiplicity of little rabbits all over the place. <laughs> and the, the ground was really wet. And when you walked, if I remember well, there was uh, swallows always behind you, like kind of um, <laughs> grabbing little f insect maybe coming out of the earth or something. So there was this, it was amazing. So very pleasant, but I would be in the hall uh, doing meditation with uh, the folks there sitting the retreat and we would get really calm and contented and very interested in what it is to be here and pacifying the mind and, and, uh, and it was beautiful work. And then I would walk out, put my shoes on, my jacket, and then like as soon as I would get towards the door, I, I could feel rhododendrons, herons. <laughs> swallows, rabbits, you know, and I would open the door and I was looking. And so at some point I realized, wow, this is, this is stressful to be in this paradise. <laughs> it's becoming unbearable. I don't even want to go out, you know, because there, there's like always looking for a rabbit somewhere. Little rabbit, so cute, you know. And so um, there's this quote here that I found from uh, maybe uh, a few... Uh, several hundred uh, years ago, probably a thousand years ago, and it says, whatever being is greedy for fields, property, gold, um, cows or horses, uh, relations, various objects of desire, 
the powerless, listen to this, the powerless overpower him or her. Trouble press him, her down. Thus unease comes to them like water into a broken boat. The powerless overpower them. Where in your life have you let the powerless overpower you in terms of pleasantness? Where in your life have you given up happiness coming from non-thirst, from freedom, and replaced it by um, an unhappiness that is based in the belief that without this, or without that person, I cannot be happy. This belief that without this, I cannot be happy. So I want this, or I want to keep this. So I think this is talking to me about happiness. Hey, your happiness is in having this, or being like that, or feeling this. Yeah? It seems to be talking about happiness, but what is the real immediate experience? Lack. Guy Armstrong, one of um, the teachers here, talks about the built-in frustration factor in desire. For pleasantness. I desire this. In it is a direct experience of misery, of lack. Give up this belief that with, with this or without this I can't be happy. And what is the result? Freedom. Of course, do not believe this, please. Ehi Pasiko, the Buddha says, you know, that's, it means see for yourself. That's actually an instruction into meditation. Pay attention. See if that is true in your life or not. And how, you know. Yeah. So that's the area of uh, pleasantness and the, the attachment that we can have. If there's not the attachment, then we can, it's interesting how we have access to the pleasantness. Actually, we can feel it even more. Because if I stress about losing something or keeping something, a big part of my experience is cut from feeling the pleasantness. Because I have such an investment that I'm busy in my mind strategizing and fearing the, lo the losing this thing, as if I'm not attached to it, I have a sense of freedom, then uh, the pleasantness can arise, be known, and vanish in this way. Yeah. So that's the first area. Second of four area is views and opinions. And in there, it's very interesting that it comes right after, because uh, there's an invitation to stay uh, somewhat in the realm of this pleasantness and unpleasantness. And where often we'll say or think that our views and opinions comes from, um, you know, noble thoughts and um, uh, reflections. <coughs> in the Buddhist psychology, it seems like it's saying it's an invitation to see, is it possible that your views and opinions are basically based into pleasantness and unpleasantness. You know? Um, I'll tell you like an, a kind of an edgy uh, uh, example. I'm watching uh, the news on TV and there's images of war. Yeah? And suddenly I have this strong opinion for peace. Yeah? If I don't um, slow down and really look at what's going on, I might feel very justified and it's, uh, it's peace, so it's, it's a beautiful thought, you know. But what's really happening is might be just reactivity to difficult images. So the unpleasantness makes me say like, what's with that? You know, and I have, can have a whole opinion that is not based in something very deep like compassion, like the capacity to feel 
the suffering caused by actions, mine or those of others. And something very noble and beautiful, which could lead to the same opinion, but it's based in reactivity. And we say that when it's based in reactivity to pleasant and unpleasant, it cannot uh, yield to something that is beautiful and noble. Even if the opinion from the outside might seem beautiful, if it's based in hatred and reactivity to unpleasant, it's not really worth it. So clinging to views and opinions. And again, it's not that we shouldn't have views and opinion, because in my understanding, the Buddha is somebody who had loads of it, <laughs> loads of views and opinion. When you read the sutras, no, it's not like this, it's like that, you don't understand well, you know. But apparently no clinging. He was not getting worked up about his opinions, you know. Could express them clearly, but would not get in a fight Around, around it, you know, would not lose sleep around it, you know. So in, in my life, where do I, do opinion get the best of me, or enslave me, or catch me, or I get caught in, so that my life becomes miserable, and probably the life of people around me too, you know. And so that's an interesting area to research. I read somewhere, uh, was said, uh, views and opinions, the views are supposed to uh, actually uh, foster uh, ease and calm in the mind. And to me, that was kind of like, I was like, oh my God, so often this is so not what it does for me. It doesn't calm my mind, it agitates my mind. Yeah says that clinging to a view is painful, but clinging to a wrong view, a wrong understanding of life, is even that much more dangerous. Clinging to the view that, now we're getting in the really like the real core of the teaching here, clinging to the view that something, this will really satisfy me, this will solve my problem, this relationship, this job, this, you know, when there's this um, distorted view that some phenomena of life can bring a deep, lasting satisfaction. In the teaching it says, and again, see for yourself, there's no phenomena that can totally satisfy. The satisfaction is not in the realm of, of uh, phenomena because they're too shaky too conditional, too changing, too unreliable. And so when we have this view and we cling to it, that this is going to do it, you know, if only I had this, then uh, we say that's for sure that um, suffering will, uh, will follow out of that. Um, or being um, the view, having the view, sometimes you might notice this in, in yourself, the view that this that I'm doing has no consequences whatsoever. It's just like it's a kind of parenthesis in my life. <laughs> yeah? And in the teaching we say, well, it seems like it doesn't work like this, that we're constantly training the mind. Whatever I'm doing, I'm training the mind. So can I bring consciousness here and see what am I training myself to do? To worry more, to hide something, to preserve a self-image, to correct the image of myself, you know? What am, I, what am I doing now? If I'm doing this, I'm actually training that. So, um, so I can see this in my life. Where, where am I? Do I do something thinking that that doesn't have any impact at all? And so maybe there's places where I can actually let go of that wrong view and, uh, and see uh, more honestly what I do and what I say or how I use my time uh, and become very responsible in this way. And, and no blame in there. No, that's, like, um, that's what I like about this Buddhist path. Is, um, we call it sometimes the middle path. Yeah? So it's not the extreme of guilt and not the extreme of irresponsibility but this very beautiful 
line in the middle of uh, responsibility. So, uh, no guilt, no irresponsibility, but just like, oh, this is how this time is used, this is how this mind is used. What do, what do we want to foster here? Yeah? And then encourage it, develop this that has value, that is in line with my deepest uh, values. So that's the second um, area. Um, maybe there's a little quote here that I could uh, read. Here it says, um, that's kind of the, some of the, seems like the very high teaching. Dispassion for passion. Dispassion for dispassion. Sometimes we even cling to, um, to um, things that are known as more noble, like uh, ethics or mindfulness. You know, sometimes like, I should be more mi mindful. You know? like there's a kind of a clinging to something that is supposed to liberate. But the, there's a whole clinging to mindfulness. Do you see this? Like, I shouldn't be more mindful. Like, let's, let's, let's wake up to that, you know. Let's, be, let's just be aware while it, when it's possible and, and let go of the view of, uh, of, uh, around that, you know. So here it says in this quote, dispassion for passion, but also dispassion for dispassion. Nothing she grasps at as supreme, nothing upheld as the highest. So not even clinging to the most beautiful ideas, um, a free mind, and uh, and that doesn't mean again to become drab and not fight for things like if you think of uh, Aung San Suu Kyi, if you know uh, her fr freedom fighter, democracy fighter in Burma, I love hearing her because she's so centered, so um, deep, kind of a love for freedom and. Uh, deep friendliness and peace and all her energy really towards a view and an opinion that there should be democracy in, uh, in Burma or Myanmar, you know? And so lots of energy spent, but not getting worked up, not freaking out about, not even when she talks about the generals there who are uh, uh, part of the dictatorship, never talking against them. Very, very clear mind. This is not helpful. This dictatorship is not helpful. We have to do something about it. All, so much energy available, such a clear view, beautiful view, no clinging. Just a beautiful sense of uh, direction. All her life, and those of you who know her story, know like how many compromises this amazing woman has made for, for a cause, for a view of a better world, you know, a better life in the country. And so to me, this is extremely inspiring. The woman, this woman is not getting worked up about things. She's clear about things. Yeah. So a third uh, area is uh, uh, known as rites and, uh, and rituals. And so this, this whole area of, um, of uh, clinging to uh, religious beliefs, we see how much damage is done in this world for clinging to ideas around. And you know, like here they're separated in, in kind of four groups, but sometimes they, that's the theory that we, we get outside of clinging. But in the actuality of it, you know, sometimes it's very mixed. You know, I have an opinion about something and uh, it's about how we should proceed, rites and rituals. And uh, it's related to the pleasantness that I feel. So it's kind of a, can be much more murky uh, than this, yeah? But uh, anyway, we can see this in the world now, clinging to, uh, to um, uh, religious beliefs uh, can, bring, uh, can bring stress in one life. Um, one way I, I like to, um, to expand it, uh, like that's like really stretching it maybe a lot, but um, to me, rites and rituals kind of um, 
points to conventions. Yeah. So, um, so I'll I'll give you a little example here. There was I was on a retreat here several years ago, and um, we had a little group discussion during the retreat. Maybe six or seven of us with uh, one uh, monastic who was there teaching the retreat, and there was um, a, a person who was there who said. Um, I own a restaurant in town, and um, every uh, few weeks there's somebody who comes and does a graffiti on the wall and window of my restaurant, mm -hmm. and it keeps happening, and I'm really pissed off. Is that the way to say that? Yeah. <laughs> Acceptable? Unacceptable. Anyway, and like I'm annoyed about this because this is my restaurant, and the law uh, says that one shouldn't do that. Yeah. And so, so on the conventional level, we could say, of course, you should be angry, you know. But the, mon the monk who was there said, well, you know, you have to make a few distinctions here. Especially if you're going, you're aiming for a happiness that is uh, unconditional. You know, like the, this, the bar is really high huh? in the, the Buddhist thought of a happiness that doesn't depend on conditions. So he said, you really have to really understand really well the world of conventional reality and ultimate reality here. If you understand these two, you might be able to find some freedom in there. So on the conventional reality level, it is your restaurant. <laughs> because we all agreed on it and you went to some lawyer and notary and it Every signed paper, and so we all agree it is your restaurant. We, that's what we call a convention. We agree on it. But it doesn't make it to the ultimate level. It's not, on the ultimate reality, it's not possible to own a restaurant. It's not possible to own a window or a wall. Yeah? Like for me, it's not possible to own my bicycle. In town, in Montreal, I have my bike. I go around on it, I care about it a lot, but I have to understand that it's only mine conventionally, as long as we all agree that it's mine, but if one person agrees that it's not mine, and they take it, then of course I can be miserable and I can be angry and uh, hurt by the fact that my bike was stolen again, you know? But if I have a deep understanding of the, the, the ultimate reality, I'll know that it is, and it is not my bike. It's not possible to own metal, you know? So, do you see how, how important the understanding of this is? We live in a world of conventions, you know? And they're, they're good as long as it works. Uh, in my other life, I was uh, doing acting, and some, that's something I love, the conventions, because the whole of the theater is built on conventions. You know, we pretend that it's really a house, it's really a table, it's really a door, you know, and I'm really the son of that person. But we all know that's the fun of it, is that in the theater we're all sitting there like, okay, we'll agree it's a door, you know, and we'll agree that uh, when you get really sad, you come to hide in front, right facing 900 people, you know, that's the most intimate place in the, in the hall. If you don't want to be seen, you know, if you hear something and you want to hide your face, you come right in front of 900 people. That's the most, um, like, uh, intimate place and, and lonely place, you know. And so we have these conventions, and it works, and that's how we, we get into it. Like, oh, did you see when he said that to his father, and the father, you know, closed the door of the house, and he was freezing outside, when it's all happening in the same stage, you know, and, and of course it's not my father really, you know, it's another actor. But we agree on these conventions, and in the reality here, sometimes we get caught in the conventions. Suddenly we think, but it's really like this. It's really my daughter or it's really my partner, and whoops, they're gone. You know? So at the deeper level, we need to reflect on this and say, oh, these conventions, they're very shaky in a way. They work until they don't work anymore, until somebody breaks them. And is my happiness clinging to the conventional reality going to uh, exclude me from feeling a sense of freedom, or can I understand the world of convention 
enough and that I can actually find freedom and know the limits of the conventions. Yeah? So that's the third, um, third area, maybe. There's another thing that I like. So you see how I stretch it. I hope it's okay with you. The rites and rituals convention, I get this in there. I, I get in the rites and rituals also, for me, another aspect, which is um, uh, norms, norming. Yeah? And uh, at some point I was reading in the Inquiring Mind, this uh, insight meditation journal that we have about this practice that we do here. There was a little article or excerpt of some, from, from uh, Rita Gross, and she was saying, she's a Buddhist uh, thinker, and she was saying, I clearly have a female body. There's no doubt about this. Seeing this body, People assume a lot often that there was, there was the uh, giving birth to children. There was the desire to give birth to children. There was the possibility to give birth to children. Just from seeing the form, they assume that. That uh, this form is attracted to that <laughs> other form. That this form as those qualities, those interests, and often will be reminded, jokingly, gently, or more harshly, of what the qualities of this form should be, you know, or how this form should behave, you know. And so this norming, yeah. Uh, also, not so long ago, I was reading this. There was this 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 association that is recording. <coughs> Uh, murders related to uh, gender expression. And so that's just like the, there was, I think it was like 700 murders around the planet that were recorded, like the made official, around gender expression. Like you're not expressing your gender in the right way, so you shouldn't exist. That's pretty intense. So that's one of the norming that happens around gender. You know, ableism, ageism, sexism, racism, you know, all this norming that happens there. And the importance of bringing attention to this, how, how can I uh, look at my clinging to norms? And how can I... Um, can I offer protection and freedom, or how can I offer oppression through my ideas about following the norms or not? Yeah. I'll give you a, one little story. A little, yeah, that's the story I'm going to offer tonight. Mix a bunch of these, actually. So last uh, summer, I was uh, with uh, my partner. Uh, and we uh, we had the chance to um, to go out of Montreal an hour away in these beautiful um, waterfalls in nature in the woods in a kind of a national um, or reg regional park. So we found our way there, and it was really beautiful. And at that time, uh, the, in the waterfalls, there was just enough pressure. And the way the waterfalls are made, several of them actually, you can actually. Uh, if you get the right angle and the right strength, you can actually go under the waterfall, like go under the wall and hide uh, just, and so there's a wall of, uh, of water that falls in front of you and the light is diffused and you went across, you know, and it's kind of fun. And, and so we were playing as other people were, going in and out. And anyway, it was extremely pleasant. Huh? Pleasantness of the senses, green, nature, beautiful sun, uh, and the, the river and the waterfalls. And at some point, I decided to take uh, some picture of my partner who was relaxing, on the, sitting on a rock and uh, enjoying the sun. And I took a few pictures. And there was a few young men on the other side of the river, not very uh, far away, but they, 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 there was some norming going on for them. And they, they had the opinion that this was unacceptable somehow. 
And so there was suddenly this starting shouting things uh, at us, you know, and we were reminded that. So when I say partner, you you understood that I at this point <laughs> maybe <laughs> that I'm with a man at the <laughs> at the at the river, you know, and so that doing the same thing with a woman would have been probably quite fine, you know, taking a picture of your of your partner like this and. But this did not sit well with them. So there was this shouting, and it was really interesting to see how the pleasant... When, you know when earlier I was say, saying how shaky the world of pleasantness is? The sun was not gone. The waterfall didn't dry up. You know, everything was still very green and beautiful. But suddenly it was not possible to enjoy this anymore. Yeah. And there was a kind of clinging to norms that was being expressed that was extremely oppressive. Yeah? And for me, as a white male, I don't get to experience oppression that often. You know? uh, but as a gay white male, I have a certain, uh, certain access to that sometimes. You know? And so, uh, so it, was, uh, it was a situation where the, you know, there might have been even danger, because we were isolated in the woods, and suddenly the whole you succumb how percept are the how the same environment suddenly can be completely experienced differently by the same person or by a different person. You know how uh, it's not a given that it's a beautiful day at the park. You know. Uh, so anyway, so at that point for me, it became uh, actually it took a, it took some minutes because there was a lot of shame that came. You know that I. I was doing something unacceptable, uh, that there was something wrong, you know. But then I was able to touch uh, into something much deeper that I can actually rely on, that is more reliable than the sense pleasure, and that is uh, some clarity of mind, uh, some clarity around the values and what I care for, and uh, um, the sense of. Uh, Friendliness, inner friendliness that doesn't depend on outer, uh, you know, um, what is the word here? Approval, maybe. Yeah. And uh, something uh, I could touch, actually, something that I thought was pretty solid in there, you know, even in the shakiness and the potentially dangerous nature of the what was happening, there was something that had been built, I think, through practice a lot, uh, that, was, that I could touch on, that was of great value. Yeah. Anyway, nothing else than what I'm describing here happened, but uh, it was just to bring in the idea of uh, norming, of uh, the pleasantness, how it can, uh, how it can disappear quickly. Yeah. So. That's the third area. And then the last area is the area, and we've already touched on it a bit, is the area of me, mine, um, how we can cling to this, and how it can hurt a lot. Um, so um, it said, just to might bring your interest here, it says that this mistaken view that we have, and again, we're talking about conventional here and ultimate. So in the conventional reality, we say, um, uh, yes, this is my view, my opinion. But that's very interesting to watch. Um, at some point, I was working, and my job was to go in different places and meet people, which is still my job, actually. <laughs> but I had a car at that time, and I would go and spend a few hours there, and then drive to the next place, spend a few hours there. And it was very interesting, because I would get to the first place in the morning, and I would chat with people, and then there would be something about something that is in the news, you know, and I would have an opinion about something, and the person I would talk to would have the same or a different opinion. Then I would get in my car, and I would drive, and on the radio, there was somebody, an expert on, on that news, and they would express a really well-articulated opinion, which was opposite to mine, or a little different. And I would suddenly that would become my new opinion. <laughs> so I would park the car, go in the second place, and 
somebody would express the view that I had at 8 o'clock, but now at 10 o'clock I would say, oh, no, this is not what I think. <laughs> so my view now was what I called my view, was a new view. So it was not something permanent, you know, it was something changing, yeah? And so a lot of the, the cling we have around me and mine is, is uh, we put on this a sense of permanence. We feel like this is me, this is mine. We can do this with the body. This is my body, you know? And then it starts changing. And if I'm attached to my body being a certain way, and then that version starts to dry up a little bit, <laughs> wrinkle, <laughs> you know? something happens to it, then if I'm attached to, and I have this image of me like this, there's going to be some suffering, yeah? Sometimes we're, the, uh, we're attached and we're identified about something about ourselves and we don't even know it <coughs> until it changes. So that's why in the Buddhist practice we start to ask questions about this. Is this really me? Or is this conventionally me? You know? So somebody has a job, they're very identified with their job. They, it's very rich job. And suddenly, the, the, for some reason, they can't practice this job anymore. For a reason or another. And then they can have a, you know, be lost. Who am I? I really thought I was this function. You know? But outside of performing it, I'm not that function. You know? See this? So let's say I'm a doctor. I'm a doctor, but now I can't practice anymore for some reason. So what is the doctorness? It's it's in the action. It's in the doing it, you know. Or me as an actor at some point in my life. If I didn't get the job, you know, there's no, you know, if I'm really attached that I'm I'm an actor, but there's no acting <laughs> going on, you know, <laughs> I can get very suffering there. Yeah? But there's other, I mean, it says that, let, oh, okay, so here's the way you can think about it. There's um, four ways that we can get, misunderstand the me, my, mine. We either think that something is me, this is me, this is who I am, or we can think that this is mine, or we can think that this is in me, or I'm in it. Let's try a few things here. So, okay, I've done a few years of practice, Pascal, so I understand that the body is not me. There is a body there, you know, but it's not, it's not really me. It's really there. It's not me, but it's mine. Or, but I'm in it. Yeah? Do you see this? This is how the view of me, mine gets formed, or, or manifest, rather. So we can, we can see this. Or... Okay, Pascal, I have 10 years of practice. I really understand that I'm not the emotions, that the emotion comes and goes. It's not really who I am, this fear or sadness. When the conditions are right, fear arises. And when the conditions are right also, fear disappears. It's not intrinsically who I am, but it's certainly mine. <laughs> or it's known by me, or it's inside of me. And so, any, the Buddha said, or my understanding of what he said is, anything in experience can, w can be owned like this. And any of these conclusions, that it's me or mine or in me or I'm in it, is a wrong view. So sometimes in meditation, for example, we'll go to the point like, okay, totally get it, and not the body, there's this river of sensation, of tingling, of, and it's, it's changing all the time, and it's not me, but the knower, consciousness, what knows it, this is me. <laughs> and sometimes with a little bit more practice, it becomes really clear, wow, even the knowing quality is just part of the experience. There's a knowing that happens. And it's known, it's there, it doesn't disappear. But it's not me either. There is a knowing. There's another one that we can get very subtle. I'm getting into really subtle stuff, I like that. It might be confusing for you, or it might be also rich. I mean, the, the whole range is possible here. Because th these are really strange ideas. Yeah? To, to 
consider an experiment. But something we see in uh, when uh, that I see as a teacher on retreats that people will get to experience sometimes like a classic case of so we'll say okay I'm not the emotion I'm not the body I'm not the pleasantness that is felt it's felt it's known but it's not me but it's really me who has the intention to do things in life this is really me who decides to stand up or yeah or turn or you know do something this is really me yeah I mean, chances are we identify with it. Yeah, of course. Yeah, but it's, there's this uh, situation, a classic situation. Somebody will be sitting, they'll report this, and they'll come to the interview in the retreat, and they'll report, okay, this is really freaky, Pascal. Because I was sitting there, meditating, my mind was really calm. This you can't see if you're in the discursive, conceptual mind, like, next week I'll do this, then I'll do that. At that level, it's not possible to question that. That's why the meditation... The third level, information, reflection, meditation, is really important. The level of uh, silent presence. Because that's where you can catch these mi- slight little misunderstanding at the level of silent awareness. So the person will say, I was sitting there, and then there was this cold wind that came. And suddenly, there was this uh, feeling the cold, and the fear of the cold, let's say, or, or just the desire to cover oneself, and the hand reach for the shawl and put the shawl on, and then I freaked out because it was clearly conditional. There was, there was n- the intention to catch, put the shawl on was directly linked to the fact that there was cold air that came, like it would never have come to mind outside of the condition. And sometimes we think, I exist outside, like I'm separate from the world, but suddenly it really appears that I'm like kind of the character in the tapestry, or the, is it the way you call it also? Yeah, like there, this character. Like if you remove the little red uh, thread and that other thread, and the character disappears. The character doesn't exist independently from the rest of the carpet, or, you know? It's, it's totally we- woven inside. And a lot of our misery and difficulties in life is that I feel separate. There's me, and there's the world, and we're different things. It's viable, but it's going to get a lot of strate- need, a lot of strategizing, and a lot of defending, and a lot of uh, controlling, because there's me kind of almost against the world. You know? But when we start to question this inexperience and release this false idea that I'm separate and find out that I'm actually totally in part of the matrix, you could say, part weaved in to life, made by nature, sustained by nature, taken by I am nature. Nature is not just the environment, I am nature. This we can think about. It might be beautiful ideas to think about, but to experience it. And it, that's some ways that it can show that, wow, there was this cold wind, desire to arose. It was not so much me that decided. At the more superficial level, it seems like it's me. But at the deeper level, I can see that it arose like this. Or sometimes it's like where I see it is there is hunger, and there's a fork and broccoli on the fork, chances are the intention to bring the fork towards the mouth will arise. (laughs) It doesn't happen independently of hunger and fork with broccoli on the hand. Do you see what I mean? It's like so funny that suddenly I have this great personal idea of reaching the mouth with the the fork. It's me who's reaching if there is hunger and there's a fork with broccoli, chances are the intention to reach the mouth will arise. So I'm joking about this, but, but that implies a lot in our life. Yeah? So, Ajahn Cha, a very respected dear teacher, said, Do n- if you think about this, 
your head will explode. <laughs> he meant by that that this is something to be experienced in the, in the silence, attention, that one can start to see this and how amazing suddenly it is to, uh, to find out that it's not the way I, my perceptions were distorted a bit. I really felt I was alone, separated, but that was an illusion. That was kind of a magic show. And I saw behind the kind of veil for a second, I'm not separate. Or just when I realized that I'm not my emotion, this is just that is so liberating. Oh, there is anxiety. It's not me. It's there. It can be attended to or fear or any of the difficult emotion. It's there, but it's not me. Just this is an amazing experience. Or generosity arises in the mind-heart. And if there's this distortion, I'm so generous. Always been generous. That's just how I am. Generous. You know? And then suddenly somebody comes and say, you're so, what is the opposite of generous? So miserly. Stingy. You're so stingy. Moi? Don't you know? Now I have to defend generosity. Like a more wholesome relationship to it that can come is like, oh, here is generosity. Beautiful, wholesome, liberating, connective. Let's act on that. You know? Here's stinginess. Difficult to live. It doesn't mean I'm stingy. It means there is stinginess. You know? It's good not to own this stuff. Do you see the middle path again? I'm not guilty. I'm a stingy person. And I'm not irresponsible. It's just, oh, here is stinginess. Do I want to cultivate that or abandon that? You know? That is the Buddhist path. So, there's a little quote. Maybe I could finish uh, with a couple of quotes that always, I feel like it gives me some, uh, you know, some, some yeah, to what I'm saying. Thank you. So this is uh, Ajahn Amaro and Ajahn Pasano in uh, the book The Island. It's trying to find a me without a world that burdens it is like trying to run away from your own shadow. No matter how fast you run, the effort is bound to fail as the one form generates the other. The me form generates the world that burdens it. That would be a pretty good reason to start investigating this. No? Wu Wei Wu, on the other end, says 99% uh, of our thoughts are about me, and there isn't one. No wonder we're stressed out. Yeah. And maybe to finish, that's a nice one from uh, Nisargadatta. Loves tells me that love tells me that I'm everything. You might have heard that before. Love tells me that I'm everything. Wisdom tells me that I'm nothing. And between the two, my life flows. Yeah. Okay, so the freedom from sense pleasure, the freedom from views and opinion, from clinging to, I should say. The freedom from attachment to norm, how it can oppress or protect. And the freedom from uh, uh, this, mis this clinging, identification, appropriation, possession of things that is me, mine, I, and the freedom from it. Let's sit in silence just for a little minute to let these wor words uh, dissolve, maybe. So by hearing these potentially um, liberating ideas, by contempla contemplating them, 
and also uh, by experiencing them, finding out if they're true or not through the um, silent of uh, meditative awareness. May we all uh, find a freedom that is unconditional and unconventional and may we all be able to offer also freedom to numerous uh, beings. Thank you so much for your, uh, for your attention tonight. I hope there was something in there that you can chew on. Yeah? <laughs> Have a good week. <laughs>